0: Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm holding right now one of the prettiest books I've held in a while. And it's uh, been written by Dr. Josh and Jen Mulvihill. It's called 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home, Raising Children to Godly Adults. This is a spectacular book filled with wisdom, insights, and things you can learn. And it will help you navigate your way through this season of life. And Josh is with me today. Josh, welcome. Hey,
1: hey, good to be back, Bill.
0: Yeah, I'm not downplaying this at all. This is a beautiful book. You said this is your COVID project.
1: Yeah, this was our, we called it our COVID baby. Since <laughs> we all had a little extra time at home, we, uh, we gave birth to a book. So here it is.
0: Yeah, and it, uh, it, it is 50 things every child needs to know before leaving home. And l- tell me really how you got started on this idea and how was it working with your wife, Jen, on this project?
1: Well, with my wife Jen, it was uh, it was a a joy. Uh, Then I'll actually share a funny little story. So Jen and I were we met when we were assigned to be writing partners at Northwestern as freshmen. uh, Our first day of school, and she we had to we had to assess each other's writing, and uh, she my I'll just say my writing was not very very good. It was filled with red marks from Jen. She, (laughs) She is herself a very good writer, and so it's kind of funny. Twenty uh, some years later, now we actually wrote uh, w- wrote something together, and it it uh, it was a it was a joy to do together, a fun project. Yep. And now we get, now we get the joy of actually speaking together with it, so that's a that's a fun outlet. But, um, but kind of this actually started in my childhood, uh, based on my parents. Uh, so when I was seventeen, my mom and dad invited me to go to breakfast with them, um, kind of the year between my junior and senior year of college and uh, uh you know I'm the oldest of four so going out to eat alone with your parents at a restaurant wasn't a common occurrence so you, you they didn't tell me why back of my head I'm wondering you know did I do something that I'm in trouble <laughs> for what's the, what's the deal here but when we sat down for breakfast they slid a piece of paper across the table to me and they said you know, Josh, you're leaving for college in about nine months, and we want to put the finishing touches on our time with you in our parenting. And uh, is there anything on this piece of paper that you don't feel like we've accomplished in your life? And I had never seen that piece of paper before, but it was, you know, my childhood and my teen years flashed before my eyes. It was (laughs) what they had deemed as important, Mm -hmm. and the things they were working on with me. Throughout my uh, my my childhood, and there was you know, chart, check marks and dates next to things that they were working on. You know, some, you know a lot of them that are common, such as character traits, uh, you know, spiritual habits like prayer and, the, and Bible study, but also things like manners and the ability to shake a hand and make an introduction. And uh, you know, I remember you know, a whole bunch of things were on there. But they they asked, "Is there anything on here you don't feel like we've accomplished?" and I do remember seeing small engine repair.
0: That one, uh, yeah.
1: I'm not mechanical. So they crossed that off the list graciously. Uh, but they had essentially said, um, you know, they invited me to really to assess their parenting. Uh, and uh, they were really, really trying to be intentional with us as children. And, um, and so that's where kind of the, the genesis of this started is, you know, that carried over for, Jen and I into our parenting, just wanting not to be just Christian parents, but intentional Christian parents. And most of us have heard that if you have goals and keep them in front of you, you tend to be more uh, effective and impactful. And, uh, you know, many of us, we have goals for all kinds of areas of our life, whether it's finances or retirement or even building a home. We've got, you know, blueprints. Uh, but many of us haven't thought about what would it look like to be intentional in our parenting. So um, we, you know, we kind of took that with us into our parenting. And then as a pastor, um, I, you know, have always, you know, as a pastor, you have a lot of opportunities to see different family styles and, and how parents operate. And it was pretty eye-opening for me to see that that this just wasn't the norm for a lot of parents. The intentions are there, obviously. Uh, We all want to see our kids succeed and to grow up to be mature, healthy, godly young men and women. Um, But sometimes just that um, the day-to-day grind of parenting is where we're living, and we're not thinking out a lot uh, in in, in any kind of intentional um, goal-based planning. So this book really helps parents with the big picture and very specific kinds of things that help them think through where is my child at, whether they're young or older, and wh- what do we need to be working on in the next season? And a uh, really good tool for discipleship in that way.
0: Josh, I'm I'm going back to when you and Jen met in uh, freshman year in college, and she was critiquing your writing. Was it because you were writing, Jen, would you like to have pizza and go to a movie?
1: Uh no. I, <laughs> you know, I did the total thing like— uh, you know, pace in the room at the phone and call up the lady that doesn't know you. And yeah, I called her. She said, who? Josh, who? You're, the guy you uh, just tore apart in our writing class. Oh, funny. But yes, but no, but I uh, I would have loved to have some kind of romantic story in writing. We didn't have that, though. But
0: Yeah. Well, let's, uh, and I'm also a big fan of your dad. Remember last time we were uh, together, we brought him into the show and had a chance to talk to him as well. And so I appreciated, uh, talking to him as well, but that's right. Yeah. He
1: didn't eat him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And one of the things you want to leave home with when you graduate is the four uh, digit pin number on the back of his ATM card. That's also helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, I, uh, our kids cost us so much money, but it's a blessing, isn't <laughs> I, it?
0: I know. I know. So let's get back to the book. Cause I, I highly encourage people to you know, get a copy of this book if you've got, uh, Kids, young kids, you're you're raising, or maybe you're a grandparent and you want to uh, read and, and help uh, with your your children and their kids. I mean, it could be a big family activity, right? Hmm.
1: Yep. The, we definitely an opportunity for grandparents on uh, a couple of fronts. Uh, one is it's a good conversation starter to say to an adult child, you know, we would love to support what you're doing. We'd love to uh, to help in any way that we can, you know, here are some ways that that could happen. Is there any ways we could, we could, uh, we could plug in and it becomes a good conversation starter. Um, Our, my dad did that with us, with Jen and I, he approached us and said, uh, we'd love to know what you're doing as parents and just how we could plug in. And uh, this is maybe one of those kind of conversation starters. It also is a really helpful gift for, um, for an adult child who needs some framework or would benefit from some kind of, um, I call it a guidebook, not necessarily a cookbook. Cookbooks are the exact ingredients. This is more of a kind of a, a helpful guide down the path. And it, you know, for uh, for a lot of individuals that just did not have the kind of role model um, that they wish they they could have had, this provides some some help in that way. So hmm. multiple fronts. Yep.
0: Yeah. Dr. Josh Mulvahill is my guest. He's written a beautiful book with his wife, Jen, called 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home, Raising Children to Godly Adults. One of the things here in the book is trained to worship God through family worship. Now, family worship can be a challenge for many. You've got some incredibly good tips here for family worship.
1: Yeah, so family worship is one of the key cornerstones. You know, our kids are they're going to worship something, uh, whether it's the real God or some replacement, and so family worship is a key to helping them have their affections towards the true God, the the, the real God. And uh, I love what G.K. Chesterton says. You know, he says, "If it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly." <laughs> In other words, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, uh, it, it family worship's it's a challenge, honestly, at times, both from a consistency standpoint and just children being interested and engaged until it becomes a habit and that becomes much much uh, easier uh, but a couple of things we've done with our family that have been real good uh, we we do family worship during dinner because at the end of dinner actually because I think food is the secret weapon mm-hmm. uh, what you know, it occupies young children and children as they're doing things they can listen um, we have we purposefully, when we started, we kept it really brief, like five to eight minutes. Brief, read a couple, couple uh, passages of scripture, have some conversation, call it good. Uh, that was that was kind of the essence of it. Um, I like to encourage families to read the Bible rather than someone's thoughts about the Bible. So our curriculum is God's Word itself, and there's a lot of great. Uh, kind of commentary-esque things out there. Um, And those, there's no problems with those, but we want to be, our our main meal is God's Word. Um, And uh, as our kids have gotten older, we now have a couple teens in the house. We've now given them the opportunity to start leading some of the reading or discussion time. And we have a few books that we use, kind of catechism-esque books. Uh, one of our favorites is my first book of questions and answers by a lady named Corrine McKenzie. Uh, it's for younger kids, kind of preschool, early grade school age. So we have five kids, some younger still. And we'll hand that book to our teens and say, pick three questions, and they'll lead the discussion. So they get to kind of uh, become involved in it. But uh, But just the habit of that, of being in God's Word, not only does it begin to shape their hearts and their minds, their affection for God, um, but it tells them what's really important and the, the priority in our home, not only Christ himself, but God's Word, and um, that hopefully translates into a whole lot of wonderful things, because God, you know, he promises his Word doesn't return void, and we, we believe that, and we, um, you know, we want to see that true for our children, so um, you know we aim for three times a week uh, for dinner and my wife does some reading in the morning um, with our with our kids so we uh, we have a little more consistency just um, morning versus evening because you're out some some of the evenings but um, you know I'd say if it's not a regular habit the best thing is you just get started and um, do it a couple of times and um, and commit to that and um, and God um, if that's the kind of the big that's the big starting point in the home um, that God honors that, and it ma- makes a pretty big impact long-term.
0: Yeah, if the, the dinner uh, fellow worship time is only five to eight minutes, you could invite me as a guest presenter, because that's about how much material I have.
1: <laughs> oh, no, you're fantastic. You'd fill that in, in a heartbeat.
0: <laughs> I would hope so. All right, we're going to take a short break. Uh, My guest is Dr. Josh Mulvihill. He's written a book with his wife, Jen, called 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home, Raising Children to Godly Adults. When I come back, I'm going to ask Josh about learning personal responsibility. That's a big one. We'll be right back. show. So glad to have Dr. Josh Mulvihill as my guest. He's written a book with his wife, Jen, called 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home. It's a beautiful book, lots of wisdom inside. All right, one of the things, Josh, is um, that they would learn personal responsibility. I can't stress how important that is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we love to see, uh, obviously, we want to see responsible children, and uh, we, we think that happens through the combination of age-appropriate opportunity plus accountability, and obviously the the balance of that, uh, figuring that out as a parent with each child is a little bit of an art, uh, you know, not giving too much opportunity or not enough um, for the age, but we learned this the hard way one, uh, one year. We decided we were going to leave our kids home for the very first time. Uh, most, you know, parents that have uh, left their kids home for the first time. We often remember that, and for ours us, it was really memorable because we had we had a problem. Uh, we decided to take a fifteen minute walk, and you know, we gave kids instructions about you know, your 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 primary thing here is just to be safe. That's all we want. And uh, we were returning home from that short walk, and our second born came flying out the back door with a rag over his mouth and screaming at the top of his lungs.
0: <laughs> I don't and, mean to laugh.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I admonished him for being so loud. You know, the you know, people around us you, for hearing, and he moved the rag from his mouth, and tooth chunks started falling out.
0: Oh no! And
1: uh, apparently, what had happened when, like, the moment we got out of sight, they decided to play baseball in our oh. uh, in our house. We have an old farmhouse that's got a third floor attic, and they decided to play baseball. With a aluminum bat oh, and a no. real baseball, and he took one to the chops. Oh no! Uh, and I say that because that was, you know, that was irresponsible. But he, it broke off the front of his tooth. He only has a half a front tooth. Still to this day, we've tried to, you know, tried to uh, have a one glued back on, and it just won't stay. So he only has a half a tooth, and it is a literally a walking reminder to our children of irresponsible choices and. It was a teaching lesson with with our children that some of these poor choices lead to lifelong consequences. Like you're going to have probably that tooth's going to get removed and you're going to have a fake tooth there the rest of your life. And of course, the sibling feels horrible that uh, smacked him in the face. Um, but we want you know we want to avoid um, not giving our children the opportunity to develop responsibility. Failure uh, failures a strong teacher, and in this case, it was for our kids. Um, but also having the accountability that they can grow, and uh, and for themselves to have the motivation and the ability to to govern their choices, to govern their time, to want to do good work, to want to manage themselves. And of course, if you know, if we don't give them the opportunity, we're doing everything for them, um, or. The environment is such that doesn't allow that that becomes a a limiting factor for uh, for our children so we think the opportunities to teach children responsibility are man they're endless in our home literally any kind of small task whether large or small they're really a an opportunity for us as parents to help kids um, become more mature become more responsible and uh, and we can utilize that in our home. And that's part of uh, the intentionality piece that we can bring. If there are any of our kids that struggle with being responsible, that tasks don't get done, they get done poorly, there's not trust, there's a trust factor that's an issue there. You know, maybe as a parent, so that's one of the 50 things, maybe as a parent, we say, you know, for this next season, we want to really Focus on and work with our this child in the area of responsibility to try to help them grow in this uh, in this area, because we know as parents, if we launch a child into adulthood that doesn't have that skill of of being responsible, they're going to have consequences their whole life wh- because of that. And so we want to you know we want to help shape them in this kind of way. So. Um, yeah, so we learned as parents, you know, that was a, as a learning process for us and for our kids, that was a failure piece. That was a strong teacher for, for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Josh, if you were going to be a good sympathetic dad, have you ever thought about having half of your front tooth removed? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, just to show so, that kind of loving yeah. sympathy and I'm, I'm in this with you, son, and we'll go through this together. Nothing, huh?
1: I'll uh, yeah. I don't need to share in his failure. (laughs) No.
0: All right. Well, God bless him. Um, Let's talk uh, something about uh, in your book. I this caught my eye, and I love this because we've got you know holidays coming up, and this was confident as a host or a guest. I love Mm. that.
1: Yeah. Um, A lot of people we have found are uncomfortable either inviting others into their home, thinking the their home needs to be a level of magazine perfection um, or simply do not know how to interact well, especially the younger generation. You know, they've looked at screens so much and their interactions are through screens that oftentimes the basics of carrying on a conversation and introductions just aren't there. So, you know, how do you how do you introduce yourself? How do you enter a room? How do you shake a hand from you know web to web, a firm handshake, looking somebody in the eye, holding your head up? Um, it was interesting. We had a family in, approach us recently that said, all of your children are really confident, uh, with others in, in, uh, in speaking. And I, you know, Jen and I never really thought of that. Um, but we bring them, I end up traveling and speaking pretty regularly, and we bring our kids with us often. So they're, you know, they're engaged in all these different environments that they have to learn to interact with others. And so we have conversations with them going into that about here's how to hold yourself. Here are some things to think about as you are engaging with individuals. And, um, and the, the you know, the whole idea of hospitality in Scripture with, with inviting people into our home it is such a huge piece of, I believe, of the Christian life. There's nothing more intimate than having somebody into your own house. And, and I encourage um, this becomes really meaningful, especially with a Christian community and a pretty big training ground for kids just in helping prep the home, um, giving some of the reasons. It's a service piece of why it matters. Um, we're having a group of fathers and sons over tonight that we are going to prep for after I get off today, um, that we are, you know, we're, we're, um, we're studying the book of Ephesians together and our boys are part of that. And they're going to help prep food and help pr- clean our home. Smart. And, um, that becomes just, a, a a a part of life that is very meaningful and, uh, in a day and age when, um, we often, our lives are so isolated and separate, um, mm-hmm. that becomes a huge, huge value for our kids.
0: I got two more things I'm going to hope we can cover in two minutes. Um, okay. uh, personal hygiene and maintain a good appearance of, if, if I'm one of the Mulvihill kids and I'm a boy, can I have a blue Mohawk? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> oh, nice. Although
1: we encourage um, maybe encourage away from that, but yeah, I mean, our, especially teenage boys, um. Hygiene's not high on the list. I've got two of them, so I can speak from experience. Um, but we want to not only with caring for our body, um, but appropriate dress in um, dressing for the right occasion. Um, we have a very casual dress um, society right now, and that's fine in a lot of ways. But when is it appropriate to dress up and where you know, what do you wear to a wedding and a funeral and to a job interview and um to some you know those, that matters so um you know we're uh we're working on how do you tie a tie for our boys mm-hmm. and um you know those kinds of things are you know are important we our our boys get a, a shaver at a razor at 12 years old that's kind of part of our one of our manhood rights and mm-hmm. um yeah, so all those important, Yeah. we often, we often overlook it, though. Yeah,
0: I got my shaver at 12, but I didn't need it till I was 17. But thank you for bringing that up, <laughs> opening that wound again.
1: <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah,
0: Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this is always good to talk to you, and I want to do this again. I wish we had more time, but let's uh, continue this discussion because this is a beautiful book, and I want people to know about it, and I want them to get it.
1: Well, that's great. I appreciate it, and uh, pray that it's a blessing to many.
0: You bet. Dr. Josh Mulvihill has been my guest. His book is 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home, Raising Children to Godly Adults. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. of conversation is going to be a challenging one, I think for all of us, because we all eat and most of us like to eat. And eating is something that can be uh, something we put way too much importance in. And Scott Hubbard is my guest in studio. He's written a very interesting article at desiringgod.org talking about uh, how God reshapes our appetites and he calls this food rules. So Scott, welcome to the show. Good to be here with you again, Bill. Not only did I read this article, but I listened to your podcast. You presented it beautifully, and this mm. is a, a interesting topic because we all participate in this. We and, absolutely do, and this can be something that is hard to uh, understand when things become gravitate towards a sinful behavior, and when things are not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those areas of um, areas of life that's a, that's a fuzzy one. It's hard to tell in the moment, especially when you're crossing the line between, ah, this is a good, satisfying meal,
0: and I've just overindulged. Yeah. And why are we doing this before Thanksgiving? (laughs) This is what I'm so concerned about. We might have to not air this till after Thanksgiving.
2: Oh, man. Well, hopefully it will come across as good news to people and the kind of, Exhortation or reminder from God's word that will only make Thanksgiving better, not worse.
0: Okay. Let's uh let's dig into the, the text and, and uh the message. That sounds good. So
2: this is something that touches everybody, like mm-hmm. you said. If you're a human in God's world, then at some level you have a disordered relationship with food. At least at some times. It may not be the biggest issue in your life, or perhaps it it, it is for some Listeners, food is one of the bigger issues in your life. And probably for a lot of us, it's an issue that is easy to overlook, especially in a culture like ours where overeating is becoming more of, more and more of the norm. You know, you look at serving sizes over the decades, consumption mm-hmm. of sugar over the decades, and other metrics, and it's uh, it can be alarming to look at the rate at which <laughs> we are eating. But overeating, of course, is just... Uh, one, the the more obvious side of the problem then there are, as in so many other issues, two ditches when it comes to food you can fall into the ditch of overeating which is one most of us are aware of most of us, uh, a lot of us perhaps on guard with, and then you can fall into the ditch on the other side, which is uh, if not undereating, at least a relationship with food that is um, uh, perhaps characterized by guilt or a lack of gratitude or uh, preoccupation and self-consciousness. Is this right to eat and, you know, counting calories, weighing yourself over much, that kind of thing. So there, you can um, err on this. We can err on this. And, and some of us do both. Sometimes we go in the direction of indulgence, indulging our appetites, and sometimes in the direction of denying them in a way that uh, also does not
0: please God. And the denying part can be a, a distorted self-image. If I'm not happy with the way I look, i sure, and I I can deliberately try to starve myself. Yeah, uh, yeah, so there's that's some right. Issues with that as well,
2: and and that's the that's so key. It, um, you know, you can think about issues related to food, mm-hmm. and compared to some of the other issues that people deal with, it can seem trivial. <laughs> you know, there are so many issues in the world today. So many issues that. Uh, we would put our finger on before this one to say that is destroying somebody's life, Mm -hmm. you know, pornography or anger or unforgiveness or a host of other things that you could point to. And and the question is, why are we talking about food? And yet food is a fiercer battleground than a lot of people recognize. And Mm -hmm. often Usually, it's tapping into issues that go really deep down into our hearts. How we eat is more than a matter of behavior. It's a matter of where our hearts are. And one just stark reminder of that is to go back to the very beginning and remember that the first sin involved food. Adam and Eve had to leave Eden, not because they murdered somebody, not because they committed adultery, not because they uh, lied, but ultimately because they they ate what God said not to eat, which we know goes down into the heart level, which is mm-hmm. why they had to leave Eden. So that's just one reminder right at the beginning of the Bible that, okay, food is a bigger deal than many of us often think.
0: Mm-hmm. That's um, the, the the garden of eating, yeah. as you say in your article, which... I thought it was uh, very amusing. Uh, but we do use food to medicate. We, we do self-medication. We find ourselves uh, reaching for snacks that we don't need to eat because we're not hungry. But it's yep. something we do, and that is not uh, good either. So let's uh, learn more about what God teaches from his word about food and our relationship to it.
2: Yeah, so I said that on either side of it, uh, we can err. We can err on the side of indulgence, we can err on the side of denial. And what we see in the gospel of Jesus and in the person of Jesus is somebody who knows uh, how to run the middle ground between indulgence and denial. Mm -hmm. And Jesus directs his appetite. And okay, so let's think of it. We can think about it on the behavioral level, just looking at Jesus, and then of course, dig down into why why did he how did he live like this and it's surprising to some people if you haven't noticed it before, just how often the Gospels talk about food. One scholar I remember reading in the Gospel of luke he 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 put it something like in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is either at a meal or he's heading to a meal or he's coming from a meal. (laughs) And (laughs) uh, Jesus himself talks about that. You know, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Uh, Food is all over the place in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. He multiplies bread. He multiplies wine. Fish. uh, fish, Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. After he's resurrected, he comes to the disciples and asks them if they have anything to eat. He cooks them breakfast. Cooks them breakfast, yeah. And John, and of course, he has us remember him over a meal, the Lord's Supper, kind of, uh, uh, you know, so the first sin involved food and now our redemption, our, our meal of remembrance involves food. And um, so Jesus clearly was not one who denied his appetite, who acted as if food was something to, you know, only touch with gloves on or something like that. But at the same time, of course, he he did not indulge his appetite. Mm-hmm. You never get the sense reading in the Gospels that Jesus is preoccupied with food or that the accusation from the Pharisees that he's a gl- glutton or a drunkard yeah. has I any ne- reason for you that. You never
0: see in scripture, thus saith the Lord after his sixth barbecue rib. <laughs> <laughs> no. You never see that.
2: No, you don't. No. And of course he fasts. 40 days and 40 nights right there at the beginning of his ministry. So he knows how to say, yes, now is the time to eat. And he does that all over the place mm-hmm. in his ministry. And he knows how to say how to say no. And now the question is, what's going on underneath there? What do we see about the person of Jesus that uh, made him such that his practices with food are often so different from ours,
0: whether we indulge or whether we deny our appetites? Mm-hmm. In the article you talk about, God-given appetites are a stallion. Yeah. Talk about that.
2: They're powerful. They are okay, very that's, powerful. That's the idea there. God-given appetites are a stallion. And the image there is twofold. Um, number one, stallion needs to be tamed if you're going to, ride this thing Mm -hmm. if you don't tame it you don't learn how to how to put on a a bridle on this thing it's gonna run and run and buck you off and you're gonna end up with a bloody face Mm -hmm. you're gonna okay the analogy you're gonna eat and eat and eat (laughs) and it's gonna it's going to do do bad things to you it's gonna do bad things to your body it's gonna do bad things to your soul it's gonna do bad things to your relationships on the other side uh so those are people who are tempted to indulge um if you have a stallion, you don't want to shut this thing up in a in a stable either. <laughs> no. Uh, that's not what a stallion's for. God gave us appetites so that we could ride this thing. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. He is the one who put all these trees in the Garden of Eden and said in Genesis 2 to Adam and Eve, of every tree in the garden you may surely eat <laughs> except one. Say okay, one no in a world of 10,000 yeses. Right. That's the God we worship. And so the stallion of appetite, this powerful beast, yes, he calls us to tame it, to bring it in subjection to his word, but not to stable it. No. The end of taming this thing is to ride it, to finally enjoy food the way that he
0: made us to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Scott Hubbard is my guest, at DesiringGod.org. You can go learn about him there. We're talking about food today, which is interesting ahead of Thanksgiving. And Scott says in his article that if we are going to imitate Jesus in his eating, we will need more than the right food rules. I think there's some people, uh, Scott, that maybe has been hung up from the very beginning of this interview when I uttered the words food rules. Yeah, sure. I'd love for you to say a little bit more about the rules.
2: Yeah, it's... a. In some ways, a tongue-in-cheek title, it means more than one thing. So, you know, food rules, like a verb, you know, food food often rules us. And then uh, food rules, okay, we often, when we look at our problems with food, many of us, our first instinct is to come up with additional rules Mm. for what foods we ought to eat, what foods we ought not to eat, when we ought to eat these foods, when we ought not to eat them how many calories we can eat, how many pounds we want to weigh, those things. Mm-hmm. And food rules can be helpful. They can be of service in our uh, pursuit of greater self-control and a healthy relationship with food. But what we see in the life of Jesus is that food rules are not ultimately what we need if we're going to have a restored relationship with food, the kind of relationship God made us to have with it. Um, uh, I note in the article that it, it wasn't, Adam and Eve didn't fall because they didn't have a diet. You know, that's, that's <laughs> not what would have saved right? humanity from falling. Oh, they just, they just, no, they actually, they did have a diet. God gave them their diet. The the no eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil diet. And they, they broke the one rule. So a rule wasn't uh, the necessary thing. There needed to be something deeper than a rule. And what is it? What we see in the life of Jesus and the life that he calls us to is that there is a kind of food that is better and deeper than all the food we eat with our mouths. And Here's what I mean by that. When the disciples in John 4, they leave for a bit and then they come back to him. It's the chapter with the woman at the well. And uh, they ask Jesus if he's had anything to eat and what does he tell them? He says, my food is is to do the will of my Father who sent me mm-hmm. and to accomplish his work. Mm-hmm. There is something better, something deeper, a kind of food, deeper and more satisfying than the food we eat. And what is that? It is a relationship with the maker of food, mm-hmm. God who made us. And so underneath the food rules, if there is not a restored relationship with God and an understanding of why he gives us restrictions on food and drink and other things in the first place— then the rules likely are not going to provide lasting
0: change. Mm -hmm. Scott Hubbard is my guest. He's a graduate of Bethlehem College and Seminary and editor for DesiringGod.org. Just talking to him is making me hungry. We'll take a break and have uh, more discussion on food and food rules and also how God reshapes our appetites. That's all coming up after a short break. Welcome back. We're talking to Scott Hubbard today from DesiringGod.org. We're talking about food and how God reshapes our appetites. God happens to be a very lean guy, very trim, <laughs> with a fast metabolism. You say?
2: Yeah, yeah that's right. I, uh, yeah, I, I, won't, I won't get into it, <laughs> okay. but I, I have to eat a lot of food just to like just to maintain your just to maintain, <laughs> which I know. Uh, yeah, I know that's envi- an enviable problem it is. for, it for a lot of people. It catches up with everybody, though. At some point, it will catch up. And yeah, know
0: it's true. Scott, let's go back to the garden of eating, like you call it in this article, which I find charming, um, <laughs> and some of the underlying problems related to food and what are some of the, the, the problems underneath the food.
2: Yeah, so I think here at the tree, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see... One angle, and probably the most important angle, on what goes wrong in our relationship with food. And this isn't a simplistic, you know, you could offer a simplistic answer here. Uh, I I do think that if you dig into this, it will have ramifications over all all of our eating, even if there's lots more that we can say. But we talked earlier about how food rules are not ultimately... Uh, what's going to set us free and provide lasting change from the kind of unhealthy habits of eating that we have. And the reason for that, I think, appears right there in the garden. So it wasn't for lack of rules that Adam and Eve fell and decided to eat the fruit that they ate. Instead, what was it? It was an underlying belief that the God who gave the rules was not good. An underlying belief that the God who gave the rules wasn't good. Um, uh, author named Sinclair Ferguson, whom I appreciate writes this about that moment in the garden at the moment when Eve was listening to the serpent, uh, the serpent convinced her that God was possessed of a narrow and restrictive spirit bordering on the malign. Wow. Okay. That was the serpent's lie. God is holding back from you. He keeps his best fruit on forbidden trees. So she had this sense that if uh, I'm going to um, have all that I want, all that I want to have in life, then I need to go against God's law, go against God's rule here. He keeps his best fruit on the other side of his rules. He keeps it on forbidden trees. And that fundamental distortion in the character of God then breaks her relationship with food in God's world. So, all of a sudden, the rules that God gave are not rules that come from the hand of a good father who is out for our joy, but instead they come from a God who is holding back from her. and so, what do you do in that moment? Um, I'm going to quote one more person just because I just because I find it helpful again, a commentary on this moment in the garden. This is Derek Kidner, who says, "Since Eden, man has wanted the last ounce out of life." As though beyond God's enough lay ecstasy, not nausea. So, wow, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that's so powerful. So, Eve is there looking, you know, she runs up against this enough from God mm-hmm. who says, Don't eat from this tree, right. trust me. And what does she think in that moment? She thinks on the other side of this law is ecstasy, right? While God knows, no, it's nausea. And that moment, I think, is replayed in obviously very small ways comparatively, but is replayed over and over in front of the cupboard, in front of the refrigerator, while the waiter comes and asks if you want another drink, (laughs) while you see the leftover pizza and wonder if you should grab a few more slices. And you sense in that moment, okay, that to eat this would be to weaken your self-control. It would be to go against the voice of your conscience. In other words, you are running up against God's enough built into your body. And it is so easy In that moment to believe that on the other side of that enough is not nausea, but ecstasy until, of course, you partake and realize (laughs) there really was nausea on the other side.
0: Yeah. So
2: good. Yeah. So it's just a tipping point to say, okay, what is the path forward with food then? And you food rules answers. can help. What's that? You better have answers. <laughs> <laughs> and food rules can help. And, you know, I, my wife and I, we, we try to do some, some rules related to food. I have my own, you know, personal, personal rules on uh, times when I uh, will have this or not have that. But underneath it, there's got to be the deepening, increasing sense that the God who made our bodies, the God who gave food, the God who calls us to self-control is trying to keep us within the Eden of his love when he does that. And when we break past them and eat anyway, we are eating our way out of Eden, mm-hmm. eating our way out of, relation, out of enjoyment of him. So,
0: yes. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if we're going to get through this whole interview and if you're going to bring up the word gluttony once. I, I
2: thought I might have maybe i didn't i don 't think you have yeah gluttony to... is the is the you know one way the church throughout history has put the labeled the sin that we 're talking about here um and again, part of the issue with food, part of the difficulty with it is that the boundary is fuzzy, and even those of us who have thought a lot about it and have labored and prayed for God to give us self-control, there's still going to be times when we we don't realize we're crossing over that boundary between just enough and too much Mm -hmm. and have overindulged and um, practiced gluttony instead of a self-controlled enjoyment of God's food. It's
0: a very complicated issue. Yeah. There's certainly people that struggle with weight that have hyperactive thyroids or something, and they eat a very small amount of food, and they struggle with their weight. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's they're very they're, complicated.
2: That's that's right. If, you know, there's no uh that's right. Our wisdom would say there's no one-to-one correlation right. between the how much somebody weighs and their relationship with right. food. It's right. not that
0: simple. Yeah. Let's talk about the beauty of food and how wonderful it is to sit down at a nice table with good food and good fellowship.
2: Amen. So let's cut the other way. Uh the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4, he talks about the teaching of demons. and you you know some people who have fallen under the teaching of demons and you might think oh my word what is he going to talk about next and he says they forbid abstinence from certain foods whoa it can be a demonic thing for uh, people to require abstinence they require abstinence from certain foods to look at some of the food God has given and to say no you shall not eat this for whatever reason it might be, and to lay it on somebody's conscience that they shouldn't eat this kind of food. And the alternative to that, Paul says, is that God created these foods to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So yes, food is a gift from God, a major gift from God to enjoy with gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I think that is in fact one of the best ways that we can guard against either one of these errors of mm-hmm. overindulgence or denying our appetites is when you sit down for a meal you take a minute and you stop and with your family or by yourself you bow your head and you thank God for this food and there's something about that when it's done not rote in a, you know in a rote way but genuinely it reminds you okay this food came from God therefore it's for my enjoyment it's for my good he wants me to have this and this food came from God, therefore he knows what he's doing when he says this much and and no more. And when we, by his spirit, when we start to sense with our spiritual wisdom, okay, to eat more would be to go too far. This would be to indulge. I'm, I'm grasping here out of the flesh now. And saying thank you to God from the heart can just in that moment give us the spiritual sanity to say, when God calls us to self-control, he does it for our good, because mm-hmm. he wants us to get the most enjoyment out of the gifts he's given.
0: Mm-hmm. Scott, what about stress eating, where people feel anxiety, stress, they've got a lot on their plate, and it's easy to grab a handful of something Yeah, uh, as you are trying to make it through a day that's challenging and difficult?
2: Yeah. It's a common experience for all sorts of people, and I would say one of the first steps out of that kind of eating is simply recognizing and naming it. You know, Mm -hmm. we've talked about how uh, food issues sometimes seem, they seem like too trivial to even talk about. I mean, when was the last time you heard someone in your small group or your church confess to overeating or ask for prayer when it comes to um, not wanting to, not wanting to, eat out of stress (laughs) Mm -hmm. or snack throughout the day in unhealthy ways. It's just not a common thing we talk about.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And one of the ways I think we can grow is being willing in our prayer request with each other to get to to say something that might be embarrassing and to let people know like, Hey, uh, I mentioned this because this is, I know this is more than a food issue. It's a heart issue. Mm -hmm. When I'm stressed, instead of moving toward God, instead of stopping and praying, instead of rehearsing the promises that are mine in Christ and unloading my burdens on him, I look to get food to, to ease my burdens. Mm-hmm. Would you pray for me in that? Would you check in with me? Mm-hmm. There's something to that. It's not too small for discussion, not too small for prayer. I
0: agree. A friend of mine just said to me last week, he said, you know, working from home, you finish a Zoom meeting and you're six feet from the refrigerator. <laughs> And then you start another Zoom meeting, and sometimes to get the energy or Mm. the focus, Mm -hmm. you have a snack. And you realize throughout the course of the day you've had many snacks.
2: Yeah, it's so easy to do, working Mm -hmm. from home. You're not around other people, right? I mean, so much of this happens when we're alone
0: and at home and other people aren't watching. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have, if Scott Hubbard's going to have a small indulgence, what would it be? It would
2: probably be either coffee coffee
0: calorie free
2: well not, not the way you have, have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh and and you know this that that's a good good comment cuz this gets to more than calories doesn't right. it it right. gets to something else like there can be an indulgence on a stimulant like coffee that is uh also getting to getting to something deeper right. and you can you can not get the sleep that you need you can rage against that as a creature and rely too much on coffee. Yeah, fascinating
0: so. discussion. Scott Hubbard's been my guest. We've talked about food. You can go to desiringgod.org to read the article, listen to the podcast there. It's called Food Rules, How God Reshapes Our Appetites. We'll take a short break and be right back.